Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Charlie. And it is a privilege to be able to bring the word today. This is God's word. This is the word of the Lord. This is what we should pray and hope that will dwell in our lives richly, the, the words of Christ, and that we would do so in wisdom, as Pastor Scott preached last week from the book of James. That we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to one another. And Lord willing, we will even do that in our time of study today. If you will take your copy of God's word and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 19 as we continue our sidetrack series of messages. Pastor Scott right now going through the book of James. Pastor Tim and I are going through the book of 1 Samuel right now, following the life of David. And as it points to the ultimate eternal king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we come to uh, a familiar passage. If you have been in church much of your life, as it relates to David's life, as today we long to see how the Lord delivers David. The Lord delivers David. Now, I'm not sure how many of us have, in the context of our lives, have faced much turmoil in our life personally, how many attacks that we've actually experienced from enemies or those who uh, maybe we even thought were our friends that, for one reason or another, acted differently. We live in a land, in particular in our day, of course, doesn't every generation say, man, things have gotten worse and worse, right? But in my day, I don't know that I can in my 55 years think of such hatred and vitriol that just goes on between groups of people who disagree. We see that in a political landscape and how we look forward to the next six months of just how we can, what used to be considered hyperbole has now become normal language. You can't even be extremely sarcastic anymore because people have already chosen those ideas to address everybody else, whether it's right or wrong, just because they can't stand one another. We live in a world that Pastor Charlie was helping us pray this morning, fighting over land, that has been considered, well, this has always been ours, or no, that's always been ours. And so there's fighting and wars going on in our world. Nothing new. We even see this in the persecution of the church. Whether you're in India, where the Hindus are trying to eradicate the Christians there, or whether you're in Nigeria, where the Muslims are trying to eradicate the church there, the church of God is under attack in the world in which we live today. And in the midst of all that, we ask ourselves questions as to why. The difference between suffering that is seems out of nowhere, and then there's those times when we say, well, they had it coming. And we try to figure that out sometimes. We try to understand where the sub or why the suffering is there. Where where did it come from? How can we make it stop? And when it comes to our own lives personally, 
There's a lot of different ways that we can react or respond to the suffering or the persecution that comes our way. We were reminded in our, from the Word of God already this morning that there's going to be times we, we as Christians, we will be persecuted. Those who seek to live a godly life will suffer in this world. Jesus warned us that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So how do we prepare for that? Well, I hope that we can find some instruction here in 1 Samuel chapter 19, as well as later on from Psalm 59, as we look at David's life. So here, as we begin our reading in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1, I'll be reading from the New American Standard, so hopefully that won't be too confusing if you're using one of our pew Bibles in the ESV or whatever you choose to read this morning. Follow along as I begin 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all the servants to put David to death. <laughs> what a wonderful way to start the chapter. At least Saul's honest. Well, we don't know so much about that either, do we? But we've been, as we've studied through 1 Samuel, the turmoil that has been going on in Saul's life, even from the very, before he became king, he really didn't want to be king. Why in the world do you want me to be king? He ran from it, he hid from it, he avoided it, and eventually he succumbed to it. And when he became king, there were times in which he showed great valor, and then there were times in which he showed great weakness. And then once David came on the scene, primarily a visible defender of Israel when it came to Goliath the giant from Philistia. There became a new turmoil in Saul's life. An unsteadiness, an unstableness that was ruining his life because he knew that there was a threat. And as, as Pastor Tim mentioned in the last message that he preached from 1 Samuel chapter 18, there was a time in which he even tried to kill David then. Well, now he tells his son, Jonathan, and all of his servants, put David to death. But Jonathan, as Pastor Tim made it really, made a great point where he's just an, a, an example of a good follower, a pattern for us in following Jesus. Jonathan understood the, the preeminence of David and followed him. And as a good follower, Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father. And said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since this or since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? What a great friend! Jonathan's risking his life. 
This could be considered treason. Going against the command of the king to kill David, Jonathan intercedes. And sometimes we will experience the fact that there will be those brothers or sisters in Christ that when we're going through the toughest ordeals with others, may be intercessors themselves. Now in David's case here with Jonathan, verse 6 tells us that Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David. Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. What a great picture. It would be wonderful if life, as in this passage of Scripture, would just end right there. Right? Here's the wonderful end of the story. Things were going terrible. David's life was at risk, but yet now, things have been made right. Saul has vowed, David will never be put to death. David comes back into the palace, just as he did before, where he was a musician. He, he brought comfort to Saul through his music. However, things are going to change. Now, David's not the first person that we come across in the Bible that has experienced adversity from those who were close to him. The very beginning, the second generation of human beings on the face of the planet. You may recall Adam and Eve's son, Abel. We have no indication that Abel did anything to provoke his brother Cain to kill him other than to just simply be faithful to God. And it cost him his life. We read about a man named Joseph, who as a young brother to many others, well, maybe his father brought a little bit on by treating him as a favorite, but Joseph just simply shared the dreams that God was giving him, and it caused his brothers to want to kill him, even though they didn't. Good for them that they didn't, because God eventually used him to save them from the famine in Egypt. But Joseph experienced decades of hardship at the hand of his brothers. And everyone knows about Job. Job was a righteous man, even to the point of interceding for his sons and his daughters. But it got Satan's attention. So Satan asked if he could turn him away from God. And so Job suffered. These are what we would consider righteous, not in them of themselves. We know that all men are sinners. But there's no indication of any of these three men and others in Scripture where, where they did anything to provoke the trouble that came their way. But yet they were allowed to be persecuted. They were allowed to suffer. Now, when we go through situations like this, how do we respond? Do we have that vigilante mindset? I'll take care of everybody. You, ju you just give me a chance and an opportunity. I'll make it right. Or do we take the pacifist route and just go the other way, ignoring that anything ever happened, choosing to 
stick our heads, as it were, in the sand and hope that everything will just go away. In a situation like this, I mean, David multiple times now has been tried to, or Saul has tried to kill David multiple times now. And this is David, the one who, with just a sling and a stone, brought down a giant. What's David waiting on? I mean, he's already been told by Samuel, he's the king. And I struggle because I'm not like David. If I've already got the stamp of being king by God, and I already know that I've taken somebody that's probably twice my height and much bigger than I am, and I've already brought him down, I'm not waiting. That might be the reason why God hasn't chose me to be king of Israel. <laughs> but we also know a little bit more about David that we'll learn as we study through the book of 1 Samuel particularly in chapter 24 and 26, David had an understanding that I long to have. And it's an understanding that, you know what? God's in charge. God's in charge. God's got a plan. Saul is evil and is wicked and as destructive to the nation as he was. Because God's anointed. God put him there. Don't we struggle with that sometimes in the world in which we live? We, we, we don't like the way God sets things up. We, we acknowledge that he's, he's sovereign. We acknowledge that he's in charge. We acknowledge he even puts leaders in place in different places. We don't like that. But David trusted in God's sovereign hand. So that when we read through chapter 19... We understand, and when we get to Psalm 59 in just a moment, maybe sometime before lunch, maybe during, maybe we can just do it during lunch uh, while you're eating. I don't think that would probably make your digestion work too well. But, but there's three more attempts. Saul goes back on his word. Surprise, surprise. In verse 8, there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. You see David's mindset? Instead of his attention being on defeating God's anointed Saul, it's on the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And When we make sure who the enemy is, and we start the spiritual warfare as we ought to in the right direction, we have a lot less casualties around us that are self-imposed. But David experienced great victory. Verse 9, now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. Again, remember who's sovereign over here. It's not David. It's not Saul. It's the Lord. There was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp in his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. But David slipped out of Saul's presence 
so that he struck or stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. So here's another attempt to kill David. And as David, having just defeated the Philistines, is playing, trying to bring a, a, a joyful atmosphere into the palace, Saul throws a spear, misses, David escapes. But Saul is not going to let that be the last. Verse 11, then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it in the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on its head, at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? So here we have a situation where... Jonathan has already interceded, intervened. David has escaped just simply because Saul was a bad shot with a spear. But now his wife, Michael, the two children of the king have now been used to, to, to provide escape for David. Now she isn't quite honest at the end, but again, she's human. She's, again, she's not going to show herself to be the most perfect person either. But she covers herself saying, hey, what else did I have? D David was going to tell me he was going to kill me if he didn't let, me, let him go. Either way, Saul missed another opportunity because Michael intervened. And then the third attempt, David, now in verse 18 fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. It was told to Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. They also prophesied. So God here is delaying... Saul is doing everything he can to get people to get their hands on David so that he can kill him. And here, God, the Spirit of the Lord, is intervening. He takes these messengers of Saul who are not men of God. The Spirit came upon them, so they start prophesying with everybody else, and they get detracted, so they're not able to help Saul out in his, in his goal. Verse 21 says, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. Guess what? They also started prophesying and was delayed. So Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Saul just can't win. So what does Saul do? Verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Sikhu. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. He proceeded there in Naoth in Ramah. And you can imagine 
the frustration, the anger, just the irritation that's going through Saul's life right now. I mean, I've, I've tried to hit him with a spear. I tried to trap him in, in his house with his wife. She let him go. I sent messengers to go three times. No one has come back with David. And so now he is searching for himself and he finally gets there. And what happens? The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God came upon him also so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. Now, this is not the first time that, that Saul has prophesied. You may recall back from chapter 10, when, when he was anointed to be king, that Samuel told Saul, now, once this starts, the Spirit is going to come upon you, and people are going to see you prophesying. Now, again, Saul was not a man of God. He wasn't someone to, to prophesy, but the Spirit came upon him, and why God chose to do this, we don't know. But it was, a, a, it was so unusual and so unexpected that the people were like, oh, so now Saul is one of the prophets, is he? And that's the same thing that happens here. In verse 24, he stripped off his clothes. In other words, he was completely out of control of his own will. Whereas at the verse, end of verse 24, therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Again, they start mocking him again. But again, this was God's intervention. Now, I'm going to let Pastor Tim take apart the, where he was laying out all night long without any clothes on the next time he preaches. I'm, I'm leaving that for him. So anticipate just the wonderful word that will be brought that day. But what's the point here? Saul loses. His, his attempts to kill, for whatever reason, his enemy, are thwarted. God delivers David. Now, if we wanted to just simply know how we could be frustrated by working against God, this would be a great passage of scripture for us just to leave off right here. But I think it would be helpful for us. So while we may not be able to relate specifically or particularly to this type of persecution, while we may not have people shooting at us directly. Now, again, I don't know your life. Maybe you have. I don't know. But because there's really no one that's threatening my life personally that I'm aware of right now. We might not be able to relate specifically to this. But whatever type of persecution that you are facing right now, whatever enemy, whatever the enemy, because we all know as God's people, we have an enemy. Whatever the enemy is trying to destroy your life with, perhaps we could learn something from David's approach and David's response to help us as God's people. So if you will now turn with me over to Psalm 59. Psalm 59 has a title like many of them do. Titles weren't necessarily the inspired word of God, if you will. But they were given there so we could have a better understanding and a context for, for the setting of some of these psalms. In Psalm 59, in your Bible, it probably says, for the choir director... 
a mixum of David when men sent or when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. And when we read the psalm, it certainly matches up with that description of what was going on. But let's read this and study this for just a moment that we have left here today and see how God delivers David and how David responds to God. Okay? Well, verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgressions, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. This first section we see here in this psalm shows us David's confidence in God's awareness. David was confident that God was aware. Now you may have, wait a minute, that didn't sound like that initially when I read through that, but let's take a look at it real fast. Let's see that, that David, in each, there will be three sections here, and in each of these sections, David's going to draw a comparison. And in this first section, he's drawing a comparison between the arrogance of his enemy with God's sovereignty. Okay, so the first section we see there, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from bloodshed. For behold, they've set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. So these are men of action. These aren't passive enemies. And David is aware that they are very they're very proud and arrogant about what's going to do or what they're going to do to David. For they have uh, very open about what they're doing. Contrasted with the fact that David doesn't have to get them to wake up or get their attention. But what does he say to God? Verse 5. You, O God, Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Awake? Really? God's not sleeping. But this is, this is the heart of our prayer. This is like when your team is more talented than the other team. They've got more experience than the other team. They're experienced and, and they're expected to just wipe the other team off the field, off the court, whatever. But the game starts out, and the other team gets some momentum. And you, okay, well, they've, they've scored once, okay? Now we're going to respond. No, well, okay, well, then they scored again. Well, you start getting under those circumstances, and you start to think, wait a minute, did my team show up? 
And, and, and the coach starts looking around. Okay, guys, it's enough's enough. It's, it's time to go ahead and squelch that and, and start doing something yourself. Well, this is sort of the idea that the psalmist had with God. Now, again, he knows that God is great. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He has confidence that God is going to deliver him. But David is like, okay, now, <laughs> I, I, I'm not looking forward to the circumstances being bad. Uh, I'm in some bad circumstances now. So, Lord, I'm ready for you to start working. I'm ready for you to start getting involved. I'm ready for you to start engaging in this situation. And it's not as if David has to tell God what to do. He just refers back to God what he's expecting that God would do for his own. Arouse yourself to help me and see. Now, again, comparing it with the enemies who are already active, they're scheming. They're launching attacks against me. And David here, is, this is where we can relate, right? Okay, okay, Lord, I'm right in the middle. It's not that I'm vulnerable anymore. I'm actually being attacked now. Awake. Rouse yourself. Help me. Punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to those who are treacherous in iniquity. So David has confidence, even though it appears that God has not worked. Of course, we know that God is always at work. We know that God was even in the formation of these enemies that were scheming against him. He's very confident in God's ability to deliver him. And he knew that God is aware. Sometimes that's our biggest obstacle. Is we, God just doesn't know how hard this is. God, God just doesn't know how deeply I've gotten into this trouble. God just doesn't understand how desperate I am for help. Yes, he does. He brought you there. He set me there. He knows better than I do the circumstances that I'm in. He's waiting to what? Yeah. Are you going to call for do, do you have confidence in me? Where is your faith? Now that, God's not waiting to respond to you, but God will respond to the prayers of his people because he has already ordained what's going to happen, right? God's good that way. And David was confident. And we see that in the comparison. Even though the enemy was getting their stuff together and attacking David, he compares that with what seems like he has, it sounds like he's having to wake God up, but he's not. He, know God, he knows God is already there. But David not only shows confidence in God's awareness, but he also shows satisfaction in God's love. Verse 14. I'm sorry. I skipped over a point in my notes. <laughs> I know that's never happened to anybody. 
But God, David was dependent on God's deliverance. Let's back up a little bit. He draws a comparison with an enemy that's conniving, but he also has confidence in God's awareness of what's going on. As David draws a comparison between the arrogance of his enemies, he understands in God's sovereignty, God's position. He sees what's going on. Verse 6, they return at evening. They howl like a dog. Go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? The response of God, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at the nations because he knows what's going on. Because of his strength, I will watch for you, for my God is my stronghold. My God is his loving kindness will meet me. So God's sovereignty is not just simply in the fact that he, in his position, he hears and sees what's going on. He also has the power, power to do what? God, let me look on verse 10. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. So David understands that God will use this to bring glory to himself, not just in destroying his enemy, but actually using an example for his people to see how God, you know, it's one thing for, for God to have looked at this and said, okay, I'm just going to snuff them out. I'll kill them. David says, don't do that. But rather, just scatter so that people understand your control over that. Now, what happened with, with Saul? We were talking about that from 1 Samuel chapter 19, right? Saul began to prophesy. When he got into the midst of all these others who were prophesying the other prophets god confounded that situation delayed their their efforts to try to kill david but here david is saying scatter them or you can scatter them because of strength i will watch for you for god is my stronghold my god in his loving kindness i'm sorry Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords were to list, for they say, who hears? But you scoff at them. God is in control of the situation here. He will look triumphantly upon my foes, do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield, on account of the sin on their mouth and the words on, of their lips. Let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them and that they may be no more, that the men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Stretch this out, Lord, so that your people can learn how you deal with your enemies, that they are on the wrong side. Even though they feel, again, this is where David here is comparing their arrogance with God's sovereignty. Just as he was drawing comparisons with the conniving enemy with God's seeming inactivity, here he's showing that God, while the enemy thinks that they're planning all of this without God's you know, reaction to it, God actually is sovereign over it. And that in his being able to hear what's going on, his power to make them totter or scatter, the purpose is so that 
the Lord, that the, the people will know that God rules in Jacob. This is similar to other places in the Old Testament where it's said to make known that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Here's a situation where David, the psalmist, is saying to the Lord, you know, destroy these enemies in such a way that, that everybody will be without a doubt. Know that you rule in Jacob to the ends of the earth as you give victory and deliver your servant. So in trying to regroup and review here, we see, first of all, David's dependence on God's deliverance. We see David's confidence in God's awareness. And then lastly here, we see David's satisfaction in God's love. Verse 14, they return at evening. First of all, they return at evening, verse 6. Now in verse 14, they return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl as if, if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the love, or the God who shows me loving kindness. Here, David draws a comparison between the growl of the enemy and the joy of his song. Now, the enemy is growling. Why? They're, they're growling because they haven't been satisfied. The enemy hasn't been able to defeat him yet. And so they return like dogs to the city, not having their appetite filled. Compare that with David. He's completely satisfied. He's the one being attacked, but he's satisfied. How do we know he's satisfied? He's singing. He's singing. As we sang last Sunday, sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. David had a satisfaction in God's what? His love. The love of God. That's for me. I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your what? Loving kindness. I hope for you as a believer in Christ that as you go through times of storms, sorrow, difficulty, being under attack from the enemy, that you've got stacked away in your soul and in your mind songs about God's love. Why? What does Romans chapter 8 say that we just read about earlier today in our service? Turn over there, if you will. Romans chapter 8. We like to, we like to talk about this a lot with other people. We want to remind them that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But there is a significance to that. There's a reason why things work together for good. Again, look with me in chapter 8 of Romans. Verse 
Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the love of Christ must be significant if there is a danger or a, or, or a fear of, of losing it. But who, Paul says, or asks, will tribulation? I think it's very important that he puts that there first because when do we most quickly doubt God's love? As soon as we start hitting the fire. Does God love me? Why is God letting this happen to me? Why is this going on? I don't deserve this. When tribulation comes, the first thing that we want to start doing, does God love me? Because we know that if God loves me, we're in good, we're in good shape. Because we know that God is powerful enough to deliver. We know that God is is going to be victorious, that, that, that nothing can overcome, nothing can outsmart God. And if we're on his side, well, who can be against us? So who shall, or what, shall separate us from the love of God? Well, tribulation or distress? Now, Paul's not just picking these words out because they're just, you know, easy, words he uses a lot. These are actually words that apply to the fear of losing God's love. Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, or in David's case, spear. David had an understanding centuries before the Apostle Paul wrote these words that there was nothing that could separate him from the love of God so that he sings about it. You have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. You see, Paul wasn't, or David wasn't looking for revenge. He was looking for a refuge. He knew that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But he also knew that the refuge is found in the Lord. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. And again, he talks a lot about strength, but the bottom line under all of that strength is the fact that God shows me loving kindness. Because if God does not love me, I am afraid to death of the strength of God. I am afraid to death of the wisdom of God. I'm afraid to death of the purposes of God. If he does not love me, then my life is doomed. So when I find myself in the bullseye of the enemy, I should sing. I should sing. Again, I don't know what songs come to your mind about God's love. The deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, love that will not let me go. There's a song that we've sang maybe once or twice. It talks about my love, the love of God unknown. Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never 
was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. The love of my Savior becomes even more impactful for me when I think about what Paul finishes up talking about in Romans chapter 8. Because of what Christ did earlier, because it is Jesus Christ, verse 32, if you still happen to have your finger in Romans chapter 8, he, speaking of the Father, who did not spare his own son, Jesus Christ, but it depends on what translation your Bible has. If you have an ESV, it probably says gave up. If you have a KJV or if you have an NASV, like I'm reading out of, it says deliver. How ironic. That I as a sinner facing the wrath of God and death from the enemy. I was delivered because the Father delivered him to what? Delivered him over for us all. How will he not also give us all things freely? What did he give him over to? The ones to whom we should have answered to, and that is death. Now, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How was that love demonstrated perfectly? We celebrated it today. When Christ, the righteous one, took upon himself our unrighteousness, and he gave us his righteousness in place of it, and he though he was cursed, was hung on a cross to die for my sins and for you who believe in him for faith, by faith, according to God's grace, he loved you. He delivered you by being delivered up for us. The one who knew no sin was made sin for us. Because of love. Something that February 14th, in all the corporate manipulation, cannot bring about in trying to show love. Here's love Christ died for the ungodly. This is love that delivers from sin. This is love that delivers from your enemy because again, our enemy, the greatest enemy we have is death and Christ defeated. 
of love. What love song are you singing today? How are you expressing your love? Are you confident so even when the enemy comes and attacks you, you're depending on God for deliverance? Are you so aware of the love that God has for you demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ that you have confidence in God's awareness of your situation? And do you find that satisfaction in God's love so that you, like the psalmist, will sing joyfully of his loving kindness in the morning, knowing that he has been our stronghold and our refuge in the day of our distress, our strength, singing praises to God, for God is our stronghold, the God who shows us loving kindness. See, Christ, seed of David, is the ultimate example of being a target of the enemy. He was delivered up for us so that we might be delivered. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would continue working through it in spite of whatever ways I could have brought distraction about different ways in which our flesh would be slow to hear, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would teach us according to your word. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you for our deliverance when we face the enemy, ultimately the enemy of death because of our sin. Help us, Lord, to, to be confident, Lord, and, and know that you are aware of our situation because you love us. And help us, Lord, to be those who would sing of your loving kindness. Help us, Lord, to no matter how the enemy approaches, however you have uh, governed our lives so that we would be tested. Whatever the case it may be, Lord, help us, Lord, to never forget your great love for us as demonstrated on the cross. Even as you've given us privilege to, to remember today through the Lord's Supper, we pray, Lord, that you'd be honored in all that's done in accordance to your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.